The reading this morning is from Victoria Safford. To see simply, to see, to simply to look and to see is an ethical act and an intentional choice. With our open eyes, it is a spiritual practice and thus a risk for it can open you to ways of knowing the world and loving it that will lead to inevitable consequences. The awakened eye is a conscious eye, a willful eye, and brave. Because to see things as they are, each in its own truth, will make you very vulnerable. Think of yourself as a prism made of glass, reflecting everything exactly as it is, unable to exist dishonestly, reflecting beauty where there's beauty, violence where there's violence, loveliness, and unexpected joy where there is joy, violation where there is violation. That kind of seeing is a choice, and it is a sacred practice. And then there is refraction, taking into yourself as a prism takes in light the truth of what you see and hear and transforming it somehow, changing its direction, acting on it, rendering it somehow anew. That again is holy work. To see clearly is an act of will and conscience. It will make you very vulnerable. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others? Before I finish my song, now I'm gonna sing, you look. Is this how either or, or black, white, wanted, unwanted thinking gets planted in our minds and takes hold early, playfully, so we hardly notice? It's a little scary to realize how often I think in terms of opposition or exclusion without even a wiggle of hesitation. This is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is poor, this belongs, this does not. When do these become I am right and you are wrong? I am good and you are bad. I belong and you do not. Can I change my binary way of thinking? Maybe it's only natural to think that way. In fact, the way I used to distinguish nature and not nature relied on the same pattern. Here's the concept of nature that I embraced until about 10 years ago. Nature is mostly inherently good, healthy, life-sustaining, necessary, and largely outside-ish. The natural world, I said quite a few times, was the most awesome and available classroom we would invent if it didn't already exist. A place I could turn for comfort and wisdom when humanity and our most disheartening choices discouraged me. Of course, I know that humans have long used distinctions between what is and isn't natural to justify very inhumane practices, enslavement, discrimination, prejudice, 
In fact, during the abomination that was slavery, substantial numbers of us considered it natural for people to be enslaved. And to restore the natural order after emancipation, Jim Crow came to roost in the South to discourage such unnatural acts as people of different races falling in love or seating beside each other in school or bent over the same water fountains. And those who defied what the good Lord intended always suffered and sometimes died for doing so. We can go back further. <clears throat> when the forebears of what we now call the United States landed on the shores of this prime piece of the Earth's crust, they considered it natural and God-given to claim ownership of lands those nations had sustainably cohabited for centuries. This church sits on such land, once inhabited and well-stewarded by Pawnee and Sioux people. In circles where heterosexual cisgender identity is considered natural, some number of humans perpetrate violence against people of other orientations and justify eradicating their unnatural identities as being for the good, not to mention for God. When I object to such dehumanizing practices, both past and present, I do so based in part on the belief that someone, some other, chose a painfully, often fatally narrow definition of what is natural, and I know they are wrong, and that I am, well, right. And there it is again, that binary thinking. All this changed when the poet and essayist Patty Ann Rogers appeared on my reading list and plowed right through the sod of what I thought was my broad-minded conception of what is natural. She writes, this nature is not a single entity, not a consistent force that sanctions or condemns behavior, not a God substitute that we can embrace or blame or escape. We cannot legitimately use the word natural as synonymous with the words unsullied, pure, or righteous. It is no more against nature for human beings to clear cut a forest than it is against nature for Mount Vesuvius to erupt and eliminate the town of Herculaneum. Human actions may be judged moral or unmoral, wise or unwise, cruel or benevolent, heedless or thoughtful, but those are other terms and other issues. I'm speaking of nature. Everything that we name noble is nature, and everything that we name despicable is nature and our attempt to distinguish between the noble and the despicable is also nature. Rogers is a poet, as I am, and thus capable of recasting what I think I know into something I can discover with fresh eyes. But talk about a challenging frame with which to consider the in interdependent web of all existence. She continues, Bach is nature and the Marquis de Sade is nature. Florence Nightingale and the Iron Maiden are nature. Michelangelo's Piatta, the swastika, penthouse magazine, and solar flares are nature. Pedophiles and saints equally are nature. Ash pits, boggy graves, nuclear bombs, tubercle bacillus, Yosemite Falls, abortion, and polio vaccine, all are part of the sum total of everything that is and therefore nature, 
Nothing that is goes against nature because nature is the way things are. Everything that is, everything that has been. Oh my, I couldn't have been less well prepared to consider such a conception of nature, let alone see myself as part of an interdependent web that included pedophiles and Nazis and nuclear bombs. Yet, if I'm open to such a paradigm shift, what do I become? It seems very little changes in my life unless trouble nudges me from comfort into uncertainty. I need trouble. Enough of it to stir me into deeper thought and compassion and ultimately deeper action. Whether that trouble comes from reading a hard text or from illness or loss or betrayal or facing fear or letting go of what I've held for a very long time. A habit, a marriage, a belief, my mother-in-law used to say, it's all part of it, especially when things seemed to be unfolding in a way that was distressing or didn't line up with what my husband Sid and I or our daughters hoped would be so. She said it with a humble certainty, her wisdom born of a long and demanding life rearing eight children on a southern Indiana farm. Without stating the it, she said was all part of it, I sensed the it, she meant, the great whole, the mystery the all-encompassing life, the interdependent web of all existence. Maybe Roger's uncomfortable idea will serve you too as a means of looking at the wider discomfort of claiming all of us, all of them, all of it. I need a radical remedy to the present pain of our cultural, political, economic separateness. That's way too big a promise, of course, for a single sermon especially a pinch hitter. <laughs> but I hope it may be a fruitful nudge. Try this on. I have grown to feel that when I exclude and separate, I plant harm, or at least ready the soil for harm to be planted. And when I accept how conjoined all life is, all experience, all thought and feeling, I feel as close to divinity, however you or I may define it, as may be possible in my mortal life. One especially dramatic awakening stands out, and though it has been quite a few years, the lesson has never left me. In the wake of 9-11, I was simultaneously horrified and unsurprised. It seemed to me to arise naturally out of our nation's piggish way of being in the world. I felt anguish for the mothers of the terrorists even as I felt for those on board the plane hugging their children or gripping their cell phones or seatmates' hands to the last breath. I spoke with a friend in the hours after, one of many who were stranded in a foreign airport when U.S. air traffic stopped. Do you feel it, she said, like it happened to you, like it is still happening in your body? I replied that I couldn't stop thinking and feeling, what have we done? And we agreed that though the violent events themselves were discreet and we weren't there, we were not at all separate from the passengers or the terrorists or the torched fuselage of the planes or the drywall and shattered bones of the buildings and all those who died, not separate at all. Perhaps this was my first encounter with the vast expanse of unrestricted inclusiveness that Rogers refers to in her essay. 
I wanted not to lose that awareness and the strange hope that it might invite me and others to remake the culture that led to such catastrophe. I remember feeling that it was a turning point for our nation, for our materialistic culture. As the weeks unfolded, I remember growing more and more saddened that the opposite of what I'd hoped would happen was happening. When the spontaneous outpouring of service and sacrifice was dubbed Patriot's Day, I felt as much dread as I had on 9-11. The chance for our nation to reflect, to ask hard questions, and to move in the direction of greater compassion withered on its tiny vine. I've continued to grow in my belief that everything I touch, everything, touches something else, jiggles and displaces its neighbor and its grand neighbor in turn. And down the stream, down the coast, far down it, what have I altered, meaning to or not? My choices matter, small or not. How I conceive of them and speak of them matters. What might we do with such profound interconnectedness, with our sense of being part of everything and everything being part of us? How might it alter our ways of speaking, thinking, feeling, acting in the world? Thanks to the poet, poet Patty Ann Rogers and my mother-in-law, <clears throat> I've come to believe that I lose something valuable every time I cleave and segregate what disturbs me from what pleases me that I somehow dilute the richness and complexity of people, that I cut off important chances for compassion and accountability and wisdom to flourish. If we all felt accountable for the evil in the world, for all the mistakes, not only the ones we make, but others do, see ourselves as perhaps being able to make a difference in our own small ways, what choices might we make what might we ask of ourselves? At the very least, might we ask more questions and perhaps different, deeper ones that serve the greater whole rather than managing our limited personal agendas? And maybe this would give rise to richer and more sustainable choices and the possibility of greater compassion and justice. Rogers continues, if we create justice, it exists in nature. If we act so as to bring compassion into existence, it is real within the natural world. We are thoroughly nature. To claim our, uh, otherwise is to attempt to place human beings in everything we do in some rare, unimaginable realm beyond the universe, thus rendering the power of our origins lost and our obligations fake. About a year ago, my daughter Monica and I attended the Czech Festival in Wilbur, Nebraska for the first time. A parade of classic convertible cars with politicians astride the back seats snaked along as we sipped bright red snow cones. We claimed a worn booth in the Sokol Hall and ate traditional foods, brats and kraut and potato dumplings. We listened to music and watched Czech honorees and regalia promenade in costumed heat. We slipped out of the sun into a small local business and browsed a variety of cultural artifacts, old postcards, sheet music, buttons, books, so nostalgic, so quaint. A glass case held the most valuable items, one-of-a-kind things that I imagined the middle-aged shopkeeper feared a ne'er-do-well might pilfer, given the chance. 
I peered into the case and did a double take. Yup, an armband with a swastika in little old Wilbur, Nebraska. How much for that, I asked. $17, he said, because it's not authentic. Is it the only one? He assured me it was. I paid for it, telling him calmly and clearly that I was buying it in order to destroy it. He paused. That's fair, he replied. There is a time I would have thought myself quite superior to him. Might even have subtly shamed him loudly enough that other customers would overhear. To my wonderment, I felt little anger toward him, though I felt incensed by the presence of the thing in that case. I expressed no outrage toward him. I was grateful I had found it and not someone admiring of its symbolism. I viewed it as much a burden to his spirit as to mine. A human heart beat in his chest too, presumably a caring one. The armband was a malignant tumor that had manifested at an estate sale. He had carelessly chosen to sell it. I surrendered the $17, roughly one hour of paid work for me, and I claimed responsibility for disposing of it. If not me, who? At that moment, it seemed to me, I simply had the needed awareness and conviction to address the evil and act on it. I understood it to be my responsibility to let him know my intention without shaming him. With his words, that's fair. We shared a moment of profound interconnectedness. I had displayed courage without stripping him of dignity. In response, he humbled himself without a word of rationalization. Patty Ann Rogers, we are fortunate as human beings to have the opportunity to discern and to act, to recognize and experience ourselves in this welter of terror and beauty, to add our praise, gratitude, and testimony to the totality of everything that is, to place them as if we were placing seeds into soil, into the flux and form of this nature. And then there is refraction, Safford says in the reading, taking into yourself as a prism takes in light, the truth of what you see and hear and transforming it somehow, changing its direction, acting on it, rendering it somehow anew. That again <clears throat> is holy work. <clears throat>